Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. If there's one thing Toki Monster taught us since she attended the 2010 edition of the Academy as a participant, it's that she's never one to settle. Linking up with the mighty Brainfeeder Empire the following year, and subsequently signing with Ultra Records, she then went off to jumpstart her very own young art imprint. In her 2014 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, she went in-depth about the origins of her new album at the time, what it was like working with Anderson Pack, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Thank you. I think that was a, a very nice introduction to uh, the next hour. So that's from your the record Desiderium. Yes. That you just put out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes, it is. I wondered, I mean, we're going to do a little bit of showing the kind of behind the sort of under the hood shortly. But I thought before we start seeing kind of actually how you made some of that, mm -hmm. perhaps could you tell us what the starting point was for that record? For the record I just played, I mean, I can't really remember at this point. I think I started off with the percussion if you listen to the beginning, there is this sort of um, East Asian sort of percussive sample. And from there, I started to build, I guess, chords around that. And yeah, it just kind of built itself. Most of the songs I make are like that. They just sort of build upon themselves without any specific direction. All my albums are sort of collections of certain periods of my life. And there was there was no specific you know, I'm going to make an album and I want all these songs to sound like this and I'm going to go and make tracks towards this one goal. I decided to make the album after I had made a bunch of tracks and all these songs sort of reflected that point in my life where, you know, I was, I chose to do certain things stylistically at that point and I learned certain tricks that I wanted to express in those songs and from there I just picked out the ones I really liked and turned it into an album. So it was more like the album kind of came into being because you had a bunch of songs that suddenly felt like they could be the beginning of a collection. Exactly. Is that a different way of working from, for you? Like in the, with the other records that you've done, were they more like the result of a conscious decision? Oh, I want to make an album and here's some time and I'm going to make some tracks. Is that a different way of doing it? Not really. All of my, al all of my albums are basically were put together the same way. I had made a collection of songs and decided I think I'm ready to, you know, put these together into an album. Um, obviously, I've made more tracks than just what ended up on this album, but I decided that these represented the best of what I did during this time, and I just really wanted people to hear them. And I think that putting out a collection of music versus one song represents more, you know, you can explain a fuller story, sort of like an anthology. You have all these little stories within one, one big book. Another thing that's um, kind of different on this record is you and your voice as an instrument is more present on it. Did you have to do any kind of finding of your voice or did you always know kind of how you sound? I don't sound very good. I'll say that I can't sing. Um, but then as a producer, it, it's one of I've mean, always enjoyed working with vocalists, and when I'm making a track and I feel like there I want to have a female vocal on it. At that time, 
I'm the I'm right the, I'm a female vocal. I'm, it's really easy for me to decide to to do that. And you're not uh, going to be late. Exactly. And I know how to sort of accomplish what I want for the track since it's me working for me. If that makes sense. I'm very honest. I can't I can't sing. I sing really 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 bad. Um, okay. I'm not the worst singer. We can go to karaoke together and, you know, I can hold my own. But, you know, compared to some of the vocalists I choose to work with, I'm not as adequate as them to some extent. But then as a producer and the way that I decide to work with my vocals in the tracks, you know, there are tools such as Melodyne and Autotune. And I tend to pitch my vocals to achieve a goal. So I want to treat my vocals more like an instrument than a focus. I wonder if it might be worth... um giving us a little bit of show and tell on something to do with what you did with your voice like maybe an interesting way or a trick you used or something I'm not saying like give away all your mm. secrets but perhaps is there an example of a way that you used your voice in kind of an interesting way or a way that pleased you show a track yeah, yeah. okay let's see um hey there at this point in the lecture they played some music unfortunately due to copyright reasons we can't play that here yeah um bum too Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. For example, with a track like that, it, the voice doesn't sound too manipulated, but it is. Um, I double the voice, and a lot of the harmonies on here are made from pitching in Ableton. A trick I like to use a lot is just art, making the pitch vocal sound artificial on purpose. You know, um, Obviously, in Ableton, you have the ability to do, um, or for those of you who do use Ableton and are aware, you can warp you can warp and pitch anything and make it sound fairly accurate i tend to like to work with it in a way where i purposely make it sound stretched or chopped up so the vocal sounds inauthentic but on purpose um with the track that i just showed you as an example where i'm trying to make it sound a little bit more accurate but towards the end i start layering harmonies on top of each other let's see if i can find it so with the I don't, well, I don't know if it's that easy for you guys to hear, but like the high vocals and low vocals are completely pitched, um, as well as, I mean, when I when the chorus comes back in again, there's even more vocals that end up texture like creating a texture, and that's how I like to use my vocals in music. I don't really want you to focus on the singing ability more so than just how much the vocals create almost like a pad, and make the song sound thicker and create an environment. So I don't know if I just digressed, but there we go. <laughs> not at all, not at all. I think that's exactly what, that's certainly what I asked and definitely what we want to know. Um, we were going to have a look at a track that you'd made as yes. well, maybe just as a kind of, you know, again, everyone here has their own way of working, but sometimes useful to see what someone else does. Okay, so this is a track called uh, Steal My Attention. This one also has a lot of examples of me pitching my vocals, and I probably should have showed this one first. I don't know why I didn't, sorry. So here's the track. It's little things like this in Ableton or when I produce that I enjoy in terms of you know creating um, glitchy sort of sounds that are a bit more manual. I mean, obviously there's a lot of VSTs that exist now that um, can you know twist and rewind and and do things like that, but this way I can see the audio and treat the audio and also print it like this, and I can do this effect on top of that audio. Um, 
I record into a lot of my tracks using synths just from an audio interface. I do like still using bits of samples, but don't call me out on it online, please. <laughs> um, just a uh, little bits, but I think it's for integrity. Uh, obviously, a lot of times now I don't try to sample things that I'll get in trouble for. I usually try to try to re-sing it, have someone else re-sing something, especially if I use pitch vocals just because, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, I still use a lot of MIDI. Um, as long as Ableton won't crash, I usually like to keep it MIDI. I mean, I can freeze tracks as well just to sort of lower the amount of pressure it puts on my hard drive. But, you know, I'm, it's really basic. I'm not using anything too crazy. Um, as far as a lot of VSTs I like to use, um, Massive is a big one. Uh, sometimes I'll choose to use like analog synths, like a Moog or something like that, like a little fatty or a sub fatty. Sometimes it's just easier for me to use a VST because I'm traveling a lot when I make tracks. And then once I get home, I'm sort of cool with it. And I don't, like, I don't feel the need to be super nerdy and elitist and have to re-record everything with a synth. I think you can accomplish a lot just using VSTs. An example here, um, one line of the bass is more for a sub and the second line is more for punch. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what else I could tell you guys, but I mean, when I program drums, another thing is I like to tap them in. Um, one component of my music that I think is really strong is to swing the drums a little bit. Um, and that's all according to feeling. So however you, you like to swing your drums or if you like to keep your drums really quantized, I think even if you make um, other types of electronic music like house or techno, it still lends itself to have sort of a human element to how you program your drums. But that's, I mean, that's just my opinion, but it's a cool, cool way to sort of have an interesting sound signature to your music. I think that's a pretty thorough breakdown of one track. You just mentioned something about a human touch. I wondered if we could talk a bit about some of the humans that you work with on the record. And also, what makes a good collaboration for you? Well, I guess on this record, I worked with three different people. It was uh, Arama, who is an amazing singer, and another guy named Anderson Pack, and a third lovely woman named Joyce Rice. All of three who are not, you know, they're not... Super well known yet, you know, I, I think they have the potential to become great and for me to work with someone I don't need them to be famous. I don't care about that stuff. I care about talent and How well we work together and how much I admire them for what they are regardless of if you know They're making it or if they're songwriting for big artists None of all that stuff is meaningless to me as long as I I understand the person and we get along and you know and they understand me too, that's really important. And as far as a lot of these collaborations with the track with Arama, I had never met her in person. The first time I met her was last week in New York. And then we made this track maybe, I don't know, two, three months ago. Um, we live in an, a modern age where it's not important to actually meet the person in person. You know, you can build strong bonds with people. You can become someone's best friend just through the internet. And I think that's amazing and it's great that it's not as stigmatized. Cause you know, a while ago it was kind of weird to be like, oh, I have this friend I met online, kind of creepy. And, and you don't really know them. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, I can make full songs with people I've never made and met in person. And, um, and she was lovely when I met her, that was great. And, but even just communicating via email and Dropbox and these things, she was able to, you know, we we're able to work on a song that was really collaborative, you know, 
um you said that you know you want people to you want people who sound great like I guess we all hear greatness in different ways don't we do you know what it is about what it is about someone's vocal quality that sounds great to you I have no idea um I think I mean generally if I hear someone's work and it resonates with me. That's all it takes. You know, I don't think I can quantify or list down qualities of this is what sounds great to me because it can change. And um, I've worked with so many different types of people and I don't know one characteristic that's common between all of them. Anderson Pack is someone you mentioned and someone that you signed to the, you're producing as well as an artist. Yes. And yes. um, what is it about him that you like? He's amazing. <laughs> I don't even know. He's just... Um, I worked with so many people and they're all amazing in their own way, but he like, I don't know what it is. He's like a genius to me. I've seen him songwrite. I've written songs. I've written tons of songs with him already. And I can't, I can't explain what it is. I feel like he's like, the, somehow everyone has not, has overlooked him to a certain point. Now he's getting a lot more attention, but, um, he's an amazing vocalist, a great singer, writer. He can rap. But I think the quality maybe that I've uh, that is common between all the people I like to work with is that they're soulful. They have a heart. Their music isn't cold. There's something about their quality that's very authentic and meaningful. Can we hear something from you? Yes. Oops. Where did you guys meet, by the way? We met. We met through a mutual friend. His name was Dumbfounded, and um, Anderson Pack has been living in LA for quite a while. And um, he d he recently changed his name. His name before was Breezy Lovejoy, and yeah, I guess he decided to sort of you know rebrand or rename or start a new mm -hmm. path. But yeah, I just think he's great. So I wanted to ask you about another couple of collaborations mm -hmm. that you've had or will be having. And the first really was with us. Uh, yes. Can you tell us what that collaboration was and how it came about? Um, I've collaborated with him on a couple occasions. So I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Maybe. I was actually talking about the one where um, the, uh, he was introduced to you by Shingo too. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, but they took him out for Kashima. Yes. Okay. So I had met um, Ruchi Sakamoto beforehand. Um, it, he's a really amazing musician in that he's always been on the forefront of technology. Mm -hmm. He's always been about thinking forward and not backwards. So he actually discovered my music through Shingo and contacted me directly a long time ago on MySpace. Um, <laughs> if you want, if you want to gauge exactly in terms of date. So, and, um, at first, I was like, I don't know who this, like, it's, I think he had like a pseudonym or something else. And I was like, I don't know who this dude is. And then later on, Shingo 2 was like, you know, so Ruchi Sakamoto is trying to contact you and let you know. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So um, since then, you know, I, I've been able to speak with him. And, you know, I, I can say he's someone that, you know, is like almost a friend of mine, someone I look up to very dearly. And um, me, Shingo, and Ruji Sakamoto worked on a track together. Um, well, they asked me to to help contribute, um, and it was about the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And I don't speak Japanese that well, so I, I didn't really understand the words, but I understand how powerful it is. And 
you know, they've both been on the forefront against nuclear power. You know, everyone has their own opinions on such matters, but, you know, um, what they're going for really meant a lot to me and the, the way that they explained it to me as well as just in general how they view our future and um, he just approached me about contributing to to the instrumental and to the beat and originally it was just found sounds and I was able to produce it out and yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you say you kind of, you know, you, you're kind of uh, almost friends I suppose or friends of some kind, what kind of things would you two talk about? I guess a lot of things. I mean, uh, it was interesting. Once I was sitting in a cafe with him in New York and he was asking me about the musical climate. It's different from when his career started, people bought music. I don't know when the last time you guys bought music was, but it's been a while for me. I mean, I buy music, but it's not like how people used to, you know. Um, And yet... He, uh, this was um, maybe three years ago or something. He was asking me about that. And I was saying, yeah, you know, um, a musician's way of subsisting now is not like how it used to. You couldn't make a whole lot of money. Or you could before survive on record sales. Now, especially as an independent artist, I think most of my income honestly comes from touring and doing all these other things. Not a significant amount comes from music. That's why, in my opinion, I just, I almost just want people to hear the music more than to pay Oh, it's cool if you guys pay. You know, I don't mind that either. But um, yeah, you know, that was really interesting, the generational sort of perception of um, music and living off music and music business, you know. Um, I'm sure he feels that more now because he's been releasing on such cool labels like Ghostly and all these things. And um, yeah, I mean, that was something that I thought was very insightful in terms of him actually having a different grasp on that than I did because I fully know what it's like to make music in this generation. So what's the other uh, collaboration you've done with him then? So I have a track on my recent record and it's, you know, I, I named the track after him and I used some pieces of piano from him and, you know, I asked him, I didn't like sample jack him, I like, <laughs> can't like steal from your friend. So I asked him if it was okay and yeah, you know, it, I really hope one day to grow up and be a musician like him that's still very rooted in, you know, classical thoughts, but just so future-minded. I mean, that sounds weird to say that, but, you know, uh, respectful of change. And a lot of people from older generations are a little resistant to change. Not everyone, but I hope that I always stay supportive of change. Good change, bad change, everything. Yeah, so that was great. So I sampled those first few chords uh, from him or, you know, he played those first few chords and then I was able to, so all the other pieces of piano are actually from me. So I was able to kind of take the root notes of what he, the the root chords and basically build whole songs around them. And it was, it's really fun, you know, to be able to do stuff like that and to build songs off of like reappropriating or appropriating songs into a new song building yeah songs. building exactly i mean you you know you play piano you know properly i'm sure you know obviously you use the piano as an instrument as a kind of you know source for your music but like if you're just sitting in front of a piano to play for yourself or like what do you like to play um i'll say i'll say this i'm i've taken piano for a very long time when I was younger, I took lessons for, I don't know, 10 years. I never amounted to being much of a pianist, in my opinion. I mean, 
other people who have taken piano for that length of time could go on to become like proper pianists. But the way that I used to work with pieces when I was younger is that I would only play parts of pieces that I liked. Why did I have to play the whole song if I didn't like the whole song? So, I mean, the running joke in my family was that I couldn't play the piano, is that I couldn't play an entire piece from start to finish. And I had to explain to them that I didn't want to because I didn't like the whole song. So why did I have to play it? And now I call that classical sampling. I basically only played the parts that I like. And I think that really was an early indicator of the kind of musician I would become. I would only want to take the best parts. Who wants to play the shitty parts? No one. Well, no, people do, but you know, that was, <laughs> sorry. Um, but you know, a, a whole piano piece is beautiful, but then I was eight and I had the attention span of a goldfish and I didn't want to play stuff that I didn't have fun playing. And that was what was important to me with the piano. I wanted to have fun. I didn't want to be structured. I understand there's, I have really poor posture and I know piano, it's really good to have posture. And I don't know, I didn't care about any of that stuff. So just out of interest, what are the best, best parts? Um, the parts I had the most fun playing, the ones that sounded the best, but also, I mean, if I think about it now, I think the pieces I liked the most were, were rhythmic. You know, they had a lot of staccato notes or had some element that were really fun to play. I mean, I haven't played the piano sat down and read a piece of music for quite a while. Um, but yeah, if I look back at it, those were the best for me. Even playing something like For Elise, the reason why it's fun to play, or the reason why I like to play it is because it was fun to play. And there was so many ways that you can sort of express yourself without being overly complicated. I have really clumsy fingers, so if I try to play like Chopin or something, I just turn it into like a jumbled little mess. And um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I literally haven't sat down at the piano for a while. And even then, most of the piano pieces were in a language I did not speak. And so I don't remember. But <laughs> Okay, then. So, so no, 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 don't apologize. Because that's, of course, that's, that's fine. What I wonder, though, is that musicality, which you kind of had through lessons as a kid, you know, obviously it, it stays with you in some shape or form. And mm -hmm. I wondered kind of what you got from knowing some of that basic stuff. How did that musicality show through in what you do now? Um. Basically, piano helped me learn how to build melodies. I think if I hadn't taken um, piano, I wouldn't know how to build like um, you know chords in the background, um, like a lead melody on top, and strings and horns, and you know, I like the orchestral quality of classical music and how things build and tell a story. Uh, that's something that I find is very prominent in my music. I always want the ending to be very grand and powerful. And I always want this, you know, a lot of cl classical pieces have that. They have the storyline, like it, it'll build build and become suspenseful or something, it'll reach its apex and then calm down and then reach its apex again. And these things I think are very important. That's why not, I don't have too many songs of mine that are just loops, you know, um, that's a very, you know, popular quality or common quality of a lot of, you know, beat makers, quote unquote, but I just always have to do something. It has to build in some way that is, I mean, I, I can build songs that are linear, but in a lot of ways I like stories that touch back to earlier parts of the song. You like the orchestral suite? Yes. <laughs> and do you still use, I was quite intrigued by the fact that you use a violin, but like not necessarily in a straightforward way. 
but you use it to kind of make sounds. Yes. So how are you making sounds from the violin in your studio? I don't know how to play the violin, and I tried once, and it's very hard. Um, I'll just, if I can play one note on key, and then another note on key, and another note, I'll just layer them all three together and create my own sort of symphonic sound. Um, that's a good quality about being a producer. You just sort of cut and patch and tape things together, and it and it sounds kind of half decent, you know. Um, or I can, you know, the great thing about piano or any, or not piano, sorry, violin or any string instruments is that you can get so many strange sounds out of it as well. So just plucking it and distorting it or using the bow in a way you're not supposed to. But I find that it's just intriguing, like real instruments are really intriguing, the ways you can use them in a non-traditional uh, way. I saw a cool thing actually recently where like um, this this band were playing. They were like a sort of strange folk band, mm -hmm. and the uh, violinist was playing, but then the percussionist was standing at the neck of the violin and mm -hmm. kind of like playing the neck of the violin oh. to get kind of beats out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That is neat. Apparently, most violin players are pretty precious about their instruments, though. So this one must yeah, have been quite cool. Exactly. The violin I have right now is technically not mine, so. <laughs> I hope my friend never sees this and knows that I've been playing. Well, I mean, when she gets it back, it'll still look normal. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tune it or something. So we talked about a collaboration that you've done in the past and then spoken about this, but I wondered if we could talk about a collaboration that's coming up, one with Kelly Rowland. <laughs> yes. So um, I have a project coming out with Kelly Rowland, also from Destiny's Child. Also... Sounds really random, right? Um, but I guess me being so, I mean, quote, I don't like using the term underground, but I'm so below the surface in a lot of ways. And even though I think I've grown over the years, I still consider myself kind of not an above the surface kind of artist. And um, the way I perceive these big pop acts is that they don't know about us. They don't listen to music. They only listen to what they make or what the studio tells them to listen to. And just so many misconceptions. And that's not true. She loves music. She loves all sorts of music. She loves my music. And I was like, wow, that is really unexpected. And and music from my peers and music that even I don't know about, you know. And um, like, like who? Well, she was she was working on a track with Giorgio Moroder. That's not an example of someone I don't know, but then that was still an example of someone I was very surprised by. I was like, oh, really? That's that's kind of tight, you know. Um, but I think that her her taste in music is more sophisticated than I would have thought because there's only so much that we know. We think we know so much about these people via TMZ or like Us Magazine or whatever your national equivalent to trashy magazines are, you know. Um, but I still respect her. Everyone, I mean, I grew up listening to Destiny's Child. They're like awesome. It's like the thing. I mean, every, they're just all super talented. And she's someone I always thought was like, you know, she was a favorite. Everyone likes Beyonce. I like Kelly Rowland. It's just one of those things. And um, so, yeah, we started working on some tracks together. And I mean... It was just amazing for her to listen to my stuff and be like, I want to, I want us to make a track to this one beat. And it's one of my most like esoteric, strange beats. I'm like, how do you want to do this? And we'll make it happen. But when you're working with Kelly, mm -hmm. like where, where does that happen? In the studio. Um, it's kind of interesting. So I, 
am only used to producing at home. I can't produce in big studios. I can tweak mixes. I can cut vocals, those type of things. But I have, I kind of have to work from home. And um, so I'll, I'll usually bring a lot of beats in advance. So I'll, you know, have 10 tracks and be like, you know, if any of these speak to you, let me know. We can start writing to these songs. And um, yeah, she'll go through and listen. And of course, I'll make edits to the beats. They're all open, you know. Um, when I anticipate vocals on tracks, I'll leave them a little bare, which is a little difficult for me because I'm used to making tracks with just so much stuff in them. But um, yeah, I'll just have all these songs. And I, a lot of these tracks I made just for this project. I didn't change anything for her, but I just made new tracks, you know, and that's the biggest thing too, is I didn't want to sacrifice my artistic integrity just because I was working with some, some big pop star or something like that, you know, and she was respectful of that too. She worked with me because she knows what kind of music I make and yeah. Yeah. Because she wouldn't want you to come with something different because she, what, what she wants is what you got. Yeah, you never know. I could be the next, oh, I don't want to say anything. I mean, <laughs> you know. But it's interesting because that ability to kind of like totally be in the realm that you're in, but also be very comfortable working on a kind of bigger level also applies to your live kind of setup as well. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could tell us like how differently you might approach like a kind of a club show to something where you're in on a kind of much bigger stage with I try not to really change my set too much. I figure that if um, if I'm on some kind of bill, people are there to see me and all I have to offer, though, if I am playing like a big festival stage, for example, at or if I'm playing, let's say, like a quote unquote EDM stage, these things are very conflicting towards me because I'm like, I don't know what to what I what I can how I can do this. But it's weird how that whole realm has shifted and become wider. What was once, I mean, I, I don't like that phrase. I definitely don't think I qualify that even from like a press perspective, but it's sort of widened. And now the stuff that I make usually can still, can still, you know, make people excited on, on a stage where I'm playing next to someone like Skrillex or Diplo or whatever. And that's been fortunate. But yeah, when I play my own club shows, I'm definitely going to play stuff I think is, um, is going to cater to those people that came to this small intimate show just to see me. I mean, do you have to prepare differently for one of those shows? Do you bring different kit with you? Not really. I mean, um, when I play, I use Ableton and I always have a skeleton. So these tracks, I know I'm always going to play usually stuff of my own. And I sort of fill in the meat in between on the fly. So the meat changes when I play, you know, a larger show, I'll play certain other songs versus, you know, other songs I'll play for a club show, but you know I try to make the bulk of my set consistent through both because you know I don't want to be wishy washy. I just might feel like a daytime, like a daytime set versus a nighttime set. You might play something different. So if you were to cast your mind back to your very first shows, can you remember actually the first show you did? Yes, it was really bad. Um, where was it? I was so nervous. I think it was, okay, there's two. I don't know which one was first, but I remember playing in a weird small venue and I had to set up all my gear on top of turntables and play kind of like this wonky set where I was like playing on the side. And then I didn't really know how to use my controller because I bought a controller just to use with live. And I was so used to just being a producer that I didn't 
know what I was doing and a couple songs would stop and then I was like, oh crap, the song stopped. No one really cared. It was okay. I think people were fairly forgiving or whatever. But at that time, I mean, things like that happen now too. But when something stops, I know how to play it off. Like, oh yeah, I did that on purpose. <laughs> Back then when something stopped, it was more like, oh shit, what did I do? And everyone knows that I really messed up and it'd be like, oh no, crap. But yeah, I mean, I, but I learned from it and I appreciate all those moments. It's definitely also taught me to be more resilient and tougher because things happen when you play live and things happen when you perform. And even now, shows can be not what I expect. And I just, now I don't care to smile and be like, eh, whatever. So where did you kind of learn your performance chops? Like in LA, in, in kind of the local clubs? Yeah, I, th I mean, probably playing at places like Low and Theory, which is um, a club in Los Angeles. Yeah, just playing, having the opportunity to play there. And um, it's a skill that's developed over time and I'm still perfecting it. I think live performing is very different to me than producing, but that's why I use Ableton because it's kind of easier for me to produce that, or to perform live because it's more similar to producing. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't, um, an artist that started off DJing and decided to become a producer. I started off producing and learned how to DJ and perform after, so. And what kind of things have you finessed about how you perform over the years between those kind of like early nervous kind of panic gigs and, and what you're doing now? Well, I mostly learned to take the pressure off myself. I think before I used to make myself so nervous before I performed that I, I just, couldn't concentrate on what I should be doing. The more relaxed I am, the better I am at, you know, finessing through my set, but also learning to be more active. If it's just me in front of a computer and a controller, that's pretty boring. There's not much to do. I mean, I'm, I will be honest, it's not that exciting, but I think there's a charisma that's necessary to perform live. And I'm a very awkward person if you haven't realized that right now. Um, and I think just to be able to, be more free on stage. Uh, I mean, it's not being theatrical. I was never a very theatrical. I wasn't like a drama kid who like took Shakespeare. I was too nervous to do that kind of stuff. And now I've learned to become on stage and just disregard the crowd and just enjoy myself. On Like, that sounds weird, sorry. Um, enjoy the act of just playing music for myself, you know? And um, if everyone in the audience is happy, they're happy with me. And if they're not, at least I'm still having fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess moving it away from live a little bit and talking a bit about um, the kind of way you release your music. Um, I thought it was interesting that with one of the tracks from Desiderium, you just kind of like, um, just kind of put it out without telling anybody. And you, I think like your the Twitter message was like, oh, everyone's going to be annoyed about this, but it's my music and I don't care. It's just like, mm -hmm. I'm going to put something out. How important is it for you to be in control of the timing of your releases? I think it's fairly important. Um, I've come to this point now where, you know, traditional, traditionally, when you release an album with a label, they need lead in time. So that means time for them to get the proper press, to make sure they have um, distributors and to get your billboard up or like these things that they think are really important. But in my mind, the most important thing is the music. And in the age that we live in now, I mean, when's the next time you guys are going to pick up a mag like a magazine and judge an album on the magazine? 
like buy the album because the magazine said it was good. I'm pretty sure you guys will all go. Maybe you'll see the article, but you guys will go online and listen to it and then decide for yourself if you guys like it. And for me, I think that getting the music out there is more important. Also, as a musician, by the time I, like in the past, by the time my album comes out, I'm already past it. I'm already, I'm already like, ah, this, I'm not really like that proud of it now because I'm, now I'm doing this new stuff and I think this new stuff is way better than the old stuff. Not to say I don't appreciate my old work, but with me being able to control how I release my music, I can put it out as soon as I think it should come out. Like it's relevant now. I want it to come out now. I don't want my music to come out in six months from now when I don't think it's relevant anymore. Because by six months from now, all the things I did that I thought were really cutting edge or really interesting won't be important. It, it won't be the same way. It won't have that impact. I'm also very impatient. And I think that, I don't know. I just, I just hate that idea where I put out an album and the songs I'm making at the time when the album releases I think is more advanced than the album itself. And I have to go and live with this old piece of work that I did. So, yeah. So how kind of fully indie or not are you now? I think I'm like more indie than I've ever been since I released my own record. And I've never actually done that before. But at the same time, my reach is the furthest it's ever been. So I don't really... These labels are kind of silly now saying you're indie or underground or mainstream or pop because now you have because pop used to describe a sound, but pop also means popular, but now you have indie artists that are paving their way in super pop music, but it's still indie. And then what's indie if it's not underground, but it's on a label, but indie labels are now also bigger than they were before. It's contrived and annoying and weird. So I'm just like, I'm just a musician that makes music in the middle ground. I don't know. So is this something that you think you'll be doing more of just kind of, you know, really yourself and through it's young art isn't it your new yes. label so do, is that the kind of route for you for the the next little while not necessarily mm -hmm. actually you know I created the label as a platform for artists that I believe in and I want to be really active on my label you know I don't want to have my label but then myself release on other labels I think that um, I want to pave the way for my artists that I choose. And it's not a money-making venture at all. I, I just really want people to hear music and music that I believe in and hopefully other people believe in as well. But, you know, if I feel like uh, I want to release a new EP on Brain Feeder, I can just hit up Flying Lotus and be like, you, you do you want to release this? And he'll be like, yeah, cool, whatever. And then I'll release it. I think a lot of this label stuff is just about, you know, if I made make a make an album for Brain Feeder again, it's going to have a sound that I think fits them well. And or if I do it on another label, I mean, I don't, it's all weird and stuff, <laughs> but yeah, it's released on whoever I want to, as long as I have creative control. Mm -hmm. But I did want to ask you about, cause you had a kind of brief period working for a video game. Yes. What were you doing with them? So when I was working at the video game company, I was working in like, production and business development. Mm -hmm. So I just sat in the office and helped all the producers of the video games with stuff. I was more active on that side than with the, uh, the licensing side. But, you know, I got to sit down and play video games for fun. That wasn't actually a part of my job. It's just something I was able to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's 
got to see how video games are made from a producer side, not a developer side. And that was pretty cool. It's also really stressful to be a video game producer. That's what I've also learned. So were you involved in kind of the music at all for, was it Mortal Kombat? Um, I wasn't actually that involved in the music side, though I had an appreciation. And everyone who worked in the office on that side was such a big fan of music. I mean, um, I even had a coworker from my former company play guitar on my on my EP for Brain Feeder. So we all just had this really deep love for music. We'd use like our company file sharing thing to like drop music into each other's folders. And, um, you know, they would tell me all about like the guy who did all the music for Final Fantasy and um, I just how he was just a guy that worked at the company. He ended up scoring all of the video games. You know, it's pretty neat. I guess actually something else that would be nice to ask you about then is the kind of anime composers or music for anime. You mm -hmm. know, it feels like the people for video games are kind of uh, getting the recognition that they deserved now to mm -hmm. some extent. But I wondered kind of how the kind of anime music, uh, whether or not anime music had kind of influenced what you did or if you had any thoughts about those particular favourites maybe. Um, it's interesting, the idea of uh, anime culture, anime music, because now it's so much more mainstream than it was. When I was growing up, anime was kind of, well... Because I'm Asian American, it's kind of more instilled. It's very normal to watch anime, you know, growing up, it's just on TV. But then from a Western perspective, it was always like this otaku, like different, like all the anime kids were like their own thing. They'd go to anime expo. And yet now everyone enjoys anime. You don't have to be this, like a kid that dresses up in cosplay. Like people have an appreciation for watching I don't know, like, whatever it might be that you're into. There's just so many great ones as well as like anime as a film genre which is different than it as a cartoon. But now I see producers that are adopting anime music as a style, like a stylistic quality that they really enjoy. Like uh, Anna Managuchi, like these people that take 8-bit sounds from um, video games and anime, but you know, obviously they're composing completely original music with that element involved. And it's, it's cool. I love it. I'm a big nerd, so I think it's amazing to hear this kind of music become more mainstream, the sort of kawaii nature of um, video game and cartoon, like anime music as well. But then it also crosses over the other side because with someone like Shingo 2, who worked with New Jabez, they brought hip hop into Samurai Champloo, which was a very prominent anime here in Japan. So, I mean, it kind of goes both ways. Like, you know, anime music is kind of delving outside of being super sparkly and bubbly. And then you have the outside music becoming more of that. And people like Kyari Pabu Pabu, who's like crazy from an art perspective, but very J-pop at the same time. It's, it's really cool how music is becoming more global without, in, without intending to be. It's just becoming that way. I think we should all say a very big thank you to Tokyo Monster. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Tokyo. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. 
in short it's a lot of stuff uh but it's all pretty cool in my opinion anyway uh if you want to find out more for yourself you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com <laughs>